Well, good evening, and thank you so much for joining us on our midweek Bible study. We've wrapped up our study of the book of James, and we're moving on now to an Old Testament study of the Ten Commandments, which may seem like a little bit of an odd thing for Christians to do. I mean, we're living under the New Covenant, and the Ten Commandments were given to Israel under the Old Covenant. So what's the point in that? I think we're going to see that there's a lot of benefit for us in this study. Uh, I think that as American culture faces a character crisis, that what we will see revealed to us in the Ten Commandments is exactly the thing that we need to begin to restore once again the kind of character traits that are so necessary to build a cohesive society. And that begins with the first of the Ten Commandments, which reads this way in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 2. God, speaking through Moses to the children of Israel, says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, that's not the first commandment. This is like the prologue to the Ten Commandments. And we're going to get to the first commandment in just a moment. But he says here that he's revealing himself to the children of Israel and explaining why they should regard his word, his laws, his commandments as binding on them and good for them. And the first reason for that is because I'm the Lord, your God. Now, what comes to your mind when you think of the word God? The answer to that may be the most important thing about you. It's certainly going to be the thing that defines you in terms of your character, your habits, and your destiny above all else. And so when he says to them, I'm the Lord, your God, he has something specific in mind. Now, the word God is often thought of by people both in pagan and, and old cultures, as well as current cultures today, as a powerful being that rises from within the creation. When you watch the, the Marvel comic uh, movies or other uh, modern you know, reproductions of these sort of things, what you see are all these gods who are very powerful. They're like superhuman, but they're all just part of the creation. And really, that's the way that pagans often thought about the deities in the Old Testament or even in the world today. Many cultures see gods in this way. And the idea is that the creation or material and energy uh, has always existed in one form or another. And, and we're living in a time when it's organized itself in such a way for, for no really good reason. It's just sort of happened. And within that creation have risen up great, powerful entities, forces of nature, and some of them personal in, in nature that uh, we refer to as the gods. And that's the way that uh, people in, in the time in which Israel was being formed as a nation often thought about the deities. But, but we're not talking, when the Bible speaks of our God, it's not talking about a force rising up from within nature, but rather as the omnipotent being who causes nature to exist in the first place. In other words, before there were any atoms or molecules before there was any physical properties or energy within the universe, before any of that ever even existed, that there was a time when none of that existed, there was a mind. That mind existed prior to matter. The pagan way of thinking and the way many people in the world think today is that 
matter existed first and gave rise to intelligence or to mind. But that really doesn't make any sense because everything that we know about how um, organization rises up out of, out of chaos, it always involves or requires a, a thought or a mind imposing its will on that creation. And that's what the Bible tells us that God is. He, he possessed rational thought. He possesses emotion and he possesses will or the ability to decide and to act on what he prefers and chooses to be. So this God existing outside of prior to time and matter itself brought it into existence. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about God. And so when God gives these commandments, he's the God who has brought everything that we see, hear and know into existence. He alone is God. But he also reveals himself here as Lord. I am the Lord, your God. Now notice in this highlighted word that it's in all caps. The word L-O-R-D. Now that's a translation from the word Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, and it's a word that is full of significance and meaning. Yahweh is the covenant name that God used to reveal himself to Israel. So, so there might have been some generic concept of, of God, but when he's dealing with Israel in particular, he reveals himself in a personal way to them because he wants a relationship. He doesn't want them simply to think of him as this cosmic power out there, but the power out there that has drawn near with saving intentions, saving purposes, good intentions for them. And he's acted in history in a way as such as to, to deliver them out of slavery and out of bondage. So he's the, the covenant Lord of Israel, Yahweh. And the meaning of this word is, is really revealed to us at the burning bush incident, which took place a little while prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments. That's where Moses comes to God, uh, comes in the wilderness to this uh, strange uh, bush that's just burning with fire, but it's never consumed. Being intrigued by this, he draws near where God begins to speak to him from this burning bush. And the idea here, here is that the one, this, this God who inhabits eternity, who's beyond time and space, is also the one who comes to you in time and in space. That's the remarkable thing about the God of the Bible. He is this incredibly, unimaginably powerful being, unlimited by, by location or space, unlimited by time. He is as, as, as much in tomorrow as he is today and as yesterday. And yet he can come to us where we are. He can be with you in this moment, in your life, as he was when he confronted Moses in, in the wilderness. And he meets Moses there in that wilderness to give Moses a commission. He has something for Moses to do. He wants Moses to go to Pharaoh, who is over Egypt, and he wants him to confront Pharaoh with this message. He says, beginning in verse 2, um, I'm sorry, uh, I lost my place. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go. 
So imagine that, if you will. Sorry about losing my place there for a moment. If you imagine that, if you will, if you're Moses going into the presence of the most powerful man in the world at that time and saying, I've got a message to you from Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he says to you, Pharaoh, to let your slaves go. The people who you think belong to you. God says, no, they belong to him. And he's, his message for you is let them go. I'm going to extract these slaves out from your hand and from your land. And as you can imagine, Pharaoh wasn't too keen on this idea. And here is actually how he responds to Moses' message that God wants him to let the people go. He says, who is the Lord? Who is this Yahweh that you speak of? And, and, and who is he that I, as an incarnate God in Egypt, should let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And so what you have here is a great setup for a conflict, don't you? You have Pharaoh who imagines himself and is thought to be, again, an embodiment of the gods of Egypt. And all of these other gods of Egypt that they worshipped, that they saw as forces and parts of nature that were very powerful. And then you have Israel. And the contest is over who do they belong to? Do they belong to Pharaoh or do they belong to Yahweh? And then what we have in the next several chapters of Exodus is a great battle. That's what the plagues are all about. It's a battle between Yahweh and the God or the gods, really, of the Egyptians. And in each of the ten plagues, Yahweh demonstrates his superiority over the gods of the Egyptians. And at the end of that, we have the, the terrible plague of the death of the firstborn, in which Pharaoh is finally brought to his knees. And he recognizes the superiority of Yahweh. Now he knows an answer to his question, doesn't he? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? Now he has his answer. And Israel has seen, demonstrated the power of God. Pharaoh has seen, demonstrated the power of, of Yahweh. The whole watching world has seen it. We're still witness to it today as we study this story. And so there's a revelation of who this God is. And so when God speaks to the people at Mount Sinai, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, the people know who he's talking about and who it is that is talking to them. So these aren't just Ten Commandments that appear out of the void. These are the, these are the commandments, the laws, the words of their deliverer, of their Savior, of their not just God, but their Lord, their personal God, who has acted benevolently, benevolently on their behalf delivering them out of the bondage of slavery. Imagine that. For 400 years, they lived under the slavery and bondage of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But now God has delivered them out from that through this mighty passage through the Red Sea, as you'll recall, and the destruction of Pharaoh's army in that sea. And now having crossed over the sea, they go to Mount Sinai where they meet with the Lord and He speaks His law to them. 
Now that leads us to something that I think is critically important for us to understand as we prepare to study these Ten Commandments. And that is that every one of these commands comes to us in the context of grace. In other words, the laws that follow that we're going to be studying come to us in a context of grace. So many people get this upside down. They think that it's law first, and if you can get the law right, then the reward is you get grace. It's exactly the opposite. The law is given to a people who have already been recipients of an undeserved and unmerited favor that God has given them. It wasn't that he said, here are the Ten Commandments. If you keep all of these laws, then I'll show you my favor and deliver you out of Egypt. It's no, I've done this mighty work of salvation, of deliverance, and brought you out from underneath the yoke and tyranny of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And now here, as my delivered people, is the way that I want you to live in response to what I have done. You know, when you think of law within the context of grace, new covenant law that, that, that's given to us as, as Christians, and you think of it not as the way that we earn our way to heaven or the way that we earn ourselves into God's favor, but rather as our loving and obedient response to the God who has acted in such wonderful and loving and gracious ways to us, it makes all the difference in the way you view those laws. I think that's part of the reason that people just bristle under the idea of there being obedience and laws to God because they don't see it in the context of God's grace. But if you've been set free, if you've been delivered by God, then you'll hear the words of command that come from Him, not as irksome duties to be performed but rather you'll see them as the way of grace, a way that lifts you up and enables you to become the kinds of people that God wants you to be in the first place. And so the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, no other God but me. That's the idea. It's simply put, no other gods. This is what he requires. I've delivered you. I've set you free. I've done this mighty act on your behalf. And now what I'm calling you to as I, as I bring you to myself is that we have an exclusive relationship. And that I am the ultimate priority in reality in your life. And that you don't yield your life to the former slave, to, to the former masters that you had. In other words, to Israel, you know, don't go back to Egypt. Don't do the things that Pharaoh commanded you to do. You're listening to a new voice now, to the voice of your God, your Lord, your Deliverer. And so you shall have no other gods before me. And this is so critically important. And this is such a blessing when we obey this, this law. And here's why. Because the God you worship determines the character that you develop. The God you worship determines the character that you develop. Idolatry necessarily downgrades your character. Because if your ideal is inferior, if your ideal is corrupt, then you will be 
inferior and corrupt as a result. But if your concept of, of God, which again is the most important thing about you, and the thing that's going to define you, it's going to define your character and ultimately your destiny. If that ideal is the perfect God who's revealed to us in Scripture, not one who's selfish, not one who is capricious, not one who changes his mind every 15 minutes and is always doing the self-serving thing. If that's the kind of God you worship, which is what most pagan gods are like as you read the mythology. If you worship those kind of gods, you're going to become like them. But if you worship the holy God, the perfect God, the loving God, the merciful God, the God of truth and righteousness, then you are, by virtue of uh, an inexorable law, going to become more and more virtuous yourself. Your character is going to be determined by the God that you worship. And so God, in His care and love for us, says no other gods. Anything other than me as the perfect and ultimate being is going to be something less. And if you worship it, you're going to corrupt yourself. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But another way of saying this is that right living results from right allegiance. The God that you yield your allegiance and pledge your allegiance to will determine the conduct and, and manner of your life. And that brings us to the point of this series again, the character deficit that we see in America today. The character deficit that you might see in your workplace or maybe in your family or closest of all in your own heart and what can be done about it. And it begins right here, getting rid of the other gods and setting our heart, our affections and our loyalties on the God of heaven revealed to us in Scripture and specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, when we think about the Ten Commandments, they're typically broken down into two parts. The first three commandments speak of our duties to God. The next seven commandments refer to our responsibilities to our fellow man. The secular and humanist approach to ethics and morality tries to separate these two. It says that we can have good character, that we can not lie to people, we can not cheat people, we can be uh, loyal to our spouses, our mates, keep our vows, and that we can not murder one another and do all the things that the later, later commandments require. Uh, and we can do that without any regard to the first three commandments about our responsibility to God. But I think that the collapse of our character in the country today reveals the foolishness of that endeavor. The reality is that we need to have our allegiance, our devotion, ultimately to God. Here's another way of thinking about this. There's really two great commandments in the Bible. The first and greatest commandment Jesus teaches us is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment, he says, is that we love our neighbor as ourself. And he tells us that these two kind of go together. In other words, you can't really have the one without the other. And if we want to be able to love our neighbors well, to treat them as we ought to, to see in them the image of God that's worthy of our respect, 
That begins actually with us honoring and loving exclusively the God in whose image others are made. And when you try to separate that, well, you're separating what God has joined together. And the end of that endeavor is disaster every time. And so we want to uh, have the right um, allegiances to the one God of heaven so that we can have the right results in the character that we develop and the actions that we take. So when we bring this point to application for us as Christians, here's what we need to, to take away is that we, just like the children of Israel, devoted themselves exclusively to Yahweh at Mount Sinai as a result of his deliverance of them out of Egypt. We as Christians owe complete loyalty to Jesus. And we do that for the same reasons that they owe their loyalty to Yahweh, which is not a different God. It was the same God. Just as time goes by and God progressively reveals himself and then ultimately reveals himself in Jesus. This is the state at which we are now. And so we owe our complete loyalty to Jesus because, first of all, he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Just like God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, the transcendent God who exists beyond time and space, revealing himself at a particular time and location. So the ultimate absolute God of all the universe revealed himself at a specific point in time and location in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Moses was a servant in God's house, but Jesus is a son over his house. And so God reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus himself calls himself the I am the same word that was used to reveal him. Uh, that God used to Yahweh used to reveal himself to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus says, that's who I am. I am who exists beyond time and space has entered into time and space. And I am the God who will now be with you where you are. And so we need to listen to Jesus because of who he is. He is the son of God. He is God in his very nature come to show the father to us in a way that we can understand and interact with. And so all our loyalty belongs to Jesus simply by virtue of who he is. He is God come in the flesh. But there's a second reason, and it's likened to the reason that we saw for the Israelites honoring God's commandments at Sinai. And it is that Jesus has confronted the powers that have held us in slavery. Human beings have been enslaved to various dark powers and forces ever since we fell into sin at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. And those forces include the, the fear of death, the lies of the deceiver, Satan. And they include the power of sin to sort of control and direct us and tell us what to do. And these powers and forces are analogous to the power of Pharaoh over the children of Israel. And they refuse to, to let us go until someone strong enough comes to confront these forces, to confront these powers that hold us in bondage. 
And Jesus faced death itself. As, as fearful as Moses must have been confronting Pharaoh, just imagine Jesus facing death itself and going into the grave in order that he might break death's power, which he has done. And on the third day, he rose again victorious over the grave. And now for those who are in Christ who experience the deliverance from death that Jesus brings to us, we no longer have the fear of death as a controlling power over us. And the power of Satan and the lies that he tells, the lies of the devil... And chief among those lies is the lie that Satan told our forefathers in the garden that God doesn't really care about you. That, that, that he's holding back the very best and that you should just do as you please and become as God yourself. He tells us lies about ourselves and lies about God. And we believe those and those lies have distorted this world ever since. But Jesus is the truth teller. And when you follow Him and you believe Him and, and you get to know Him, you come to know the truth, and that truth sets you free. And He gives us freedom from the power of sin. And sin is described in Scripture not only as that thing that you do, but as a power that controls your behavior, that pushes you around and causes you to do things that you wish you wouldn't and keeps you from doing the things that you know that you should. But when we come into a relationship, a loyalty relationship with Jesus, because not only is He the God who speaks from on high, but He is the Lord who has come into a relationship, a saving relationship with me. He delivers me from the power of sin. Now, through union with Him, I've been washed from the guilt of sin, and I now have victory over the power of sin because now when sin, like Pharaoh, whispers, you know, Pharaoh changed his mind and chased the children of Israel down and down and tried to get them back as his slaves. He does this, sin does the same thing to you. He comes to you and says, you can't really be free. You still got to listen and do what I tell you to. But now you've got a loyalty to a new master. And you have the power in your life to say to, say to sin, you're not my master. I don't have to listen to you anymore. I can now yield the members of my body to do the right thing, whereas I used to use them to do the wrong thing. But now I've been set free. I have a new master. And so I should be obedient to the commands of Jesus for the same reasons, but really greater reasons, just taken to the whole new level that the children of Israel should be obedient to the law of Moses because we've been set free by the God who is the great I am come to meet me in person and deliver me from bondage to the things that held me back and held me down. It's good news. And this is the beginning point for the development of the character that we need to be a people who are set free and now have set our affections and loyalties on the Lord Jesus Christ and on the God the Father whom He has come to reveal and to reunite us to. I hope that you'll live in that freedom that Jesus has purchased for you. If you've never experienced that freedom, Romans the sixth chapter tells us that we, when we trust in Him and, and, and we are buried in the waters of baptism, it's just like the children of Israel going through the Red Sea. 
We're buried with Christ as they were buried, as it were, with Moses figuratively. We're buried with Christ. And just as they came out on the other side, a new people set free from the bondage that had held them back before. When we emerge from the waters of baptism in Christ, we're new creatures. We're set free from the life that we had before. If you've never experienced that, we'd love to help you to do so and study with you more. And if you want to be baptized, then we're ready to assist you in that regard. Well, thank you again for joining us in this study. We're going to be continuing these for the next several weeks, and I hope that it'll prove transformative to us as we strive to lead one another into a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Our great God and Father, how good and merciful you've been to us. You've sent your son Jesus, who's died for us on the cross, breaking the powers of sin, of Satan, and of death, and setting us free, help us now to live in the freedom that He has purchased for us. May we be loyal subjects to Him as our King, knowing that His law is ever and always for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And God bless you all.